Well, if you were to ask people why Jesus saved them, you might get a lot of different answers. You might get theological answers. You might get practical answers. But I think you might get a lot of answers in why Jesus saved you. Think about it yourself. Why did Jesus save you? For what purpose? For what purpose? Well, today we're going to see what genuine faith looks like, and we're going to look at that from the example of the Thessalonians, in which we see uh, within their example one of the main reasons the Lord Jesus saved us. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians And we're going to be continuing our look. Now, last week we looked at verses 6 through 10, and we rushed through 9 and 10, just not enough time, and that was planned that way. So today we're going to take a more deeper look at verses 9 and 10. Now, you might remember that uh, verse 1 of this book reveals uh, who is writing to who. The Apostle Paul with his companions, Silas and Timothy, are writing to the church of the Thessalonians. Uh, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And within this, uh, Paul is uh, writing to genuine believers. They are those who have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in chapter 1, as we'll review today. We see that in chapter 2. They responded, they received the word, not as the word of men, but the word of God, uh, that God that performs its work in you who believe. Now, in Acts chapter 16, we have the context of how the Thessalonian church was brought about by the Lord. We have the Apostle Paul and his companions being obedient and entering into uh, Europe and sharing the gospel uh, in Philippi uh, with Lydia and those at the river and Lydia and her household being saved. And then Paul being and Silas being arrested and uh, then God sovereignly bringing that earthquake, and as they're singing praises and hymns to the Lord, the jailer, what must I do to be saved? And uh, they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And we had the Philippian jailer and his household coming to faith, and then uh, those uh, those uh, Jews uh, riled up crowds in Philippi and ultimately uh, drove Paul out to the magistrates uh, saying, leave here, basically. And he went on uh, from there uh, to some 50 miles west of Thessalonica. And the Apostle Paul remained in Thessalonica for three weeks until the Jews of that city uh, became enraged at his teaching about Jesus and created a riot. He then fled to Berea, Athens, and then on to Corinth. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3, having been away from the Thessalonians for just a short time, probably a few months, uh, maybe not as much as a year, but within, you know, from a few months to a year. Uh, in Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage them as to the faith. He was concerned about the persecution they were going through for having turned to Jesus and that Satan might have tempted them in that. And so he sent Timothy. And then uh, the apostle Paul uh, went on to Corinth. And in Corinth, Timothy came back with his report, and this letter is a response to the report that Timothy gave the Apostle Paul. Now, it's probably being written, probably was written somewhere around the spring of 50 AD while Paul was in Corinth during that 18-month stay, probably closer to the beginning of that than the end. And it's important to note that as we look through and study the book of 1 Thessalonians, that this book is written to uh, those who are very young in the faith, less than a year old in the faith, 
And yet the Apostle Paul expects them to know truth, truth that he had taught them, truth that they had grasped when he was there. And we'll see that today. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to see today what genuine faith in Christ looks like as we learn together from the example of these Thessalonians. Now I want to read from verse 2 up through our passage, and uh, then we'll get into the passage specifically. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. And then our passage. For they themselves report uh, about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, as I mentioned, we've already looked at verses 6 through 10, but we've just rushed through it about five minutes, 9 and 10. So I want to expand on that today, verses 9 and 10. But I believe we're going to see very clearly in this context that we were saved to serve the living God. And within that, we were saved to serve the living God while we wait for him to come back for us. That really summarizes where our mindset should be as believers. And we so easily get distracted within the difficulties of life and the things of the day, whatever it might be. And we can learn from this example. You see, this is an example that went out, as we will see, that we can learn from together. So with that in mind... Let's uh, review just briefly. Remember we saw in chapter uh, 1, uh, verses 2 through 5, that Paul was so thankful. We just read it. He was so thankful for their changed lives, and he was always bearing in mind uh, their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, true believers, these, these Thessalonians were, as evidenced by what we see here and what we'll see later. And he was so thankful that the gospel didn't just come in word only, but there was a tremendous response. It was fully convicting through the power of the Spirit of God, and they were truly saved. They were truly saved. And it was an evidence that they had been chosen by God. Now, Paul was so thankful with that response to that Spirit-empowered gospel, and they bore genuine fruit of faith, love, and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine believers... And it's an example of those who've truly come to faith. And then after that, well, that portion, we have Paul and his companions' observations. 
So thankful. And now, in verses 6 through 10, we have the response of Paul and his companions to the observations of others concerning these Thessalonians. And we're going to see that Paul saw, that Paul received the report that they had, of how they had received the word. They received it in much tribulation with joy of the Spirit. They became imitators and examples of all the believers in the region and to all believers, including us. Verse 6, and you also became imitators of us. That's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They followed the example, the term imitators, they, they mimicked, they followed the example of the Apostle Paul, his companions, and the Lord, in that they received the word, and later on we see they received it as God's message, not as man's. That same word which performs its work in you who believe. But yet receiving the word, not simply being saved, but receiving it afterwards, agreeing with it, understanding it, brought about tribulation. You see, when we obey the word of God, it brings about tribulation. It brings about difficulty. And they received it in the context, as we see in our passage, of much tribulation. You see, there is a temporal cost to coming to Jesus, although there is eternal glory. It's part of that temporal cost is, is sometimes persecution for obeying the word of God. For obeying the word of God. For receiving it. When you receive it, you're going to obey it. You believe it. Indeed, Paul and his companions experienced tribulation when they received the word so as to obey it. And so did the Lord. They became examples of Paul and his companions and the Lord. You see, the Lord received the word of God. God the Son, uh, perfect uh, God in human flesh. He obeyed the word. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving an example for you to follow in his footsteps. And the Apostle Paul and his companions followed in the footsteps of the Lord, obeying the Father's will and suffering temporally for it. And these Thessalonians became examples also of the very same thing, of the very same thing. You see, it's through the truth of God and obedience to it that we will suffer at times. And yet the truth of God is also that which encourages us by the Spirit of God. When we see the realities that what's truly going on is is way beyond what we are experiencing here and it has eternal ramifications, we're encouraged and there is joy. Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They were encouraged by that. It's encouragement to know that you're on the right path, even if it's difficult. It's encouragement. That uh, we know that uh, tribulation produces the character of Christ in us. And it brings about hope because his love has been poured out on our hearts. Romans chapter 5. We know that. That brings joy. Okay, we're on the right path, becoming like Jesus. And we also know that it's producing an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, So we don't look at the things that are seen, because those are temporal, but the things that are unseen, those are eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So then, with that understanding, there also comes the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, when you're going through difficulties, there's going to be hardship and tribulation. But if it's for Christ, if it's for doing what is right, there's also joy. There's also joy. 
He says here, you also became imitators of us, verse 6, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The things were not joyful, but the Spirit of God brought about joy. Brought about joy. And folks, this true conversion was, was illustrated by their joyful response, even in the midst of suffering. And it is an example, as we will see, to us. It is an example. He says here in verse 7, so that you became an example, or a tupas, or tupon, a type. You became a, 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 an exact thing to follow in a sense. You became a pattern to follow. We're going to see, we don't follow the pattern specifically of how someone got saved. We just believe the gospel, we get saved. And there certainly is a pattern in that. But we do follow the pattern of how someone responds after they're saved. You see, some people may have truly been saved, but they don't know from the word of God what they've been saved unto. And we're going to see these Thessalonians were taught and they understood. And they became an example of that. They became an example of that. He says, you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's an example to believers. It's an example to us. It's not to non-believers. They don't understand. It's an example to believers. To believers. And that Macedonia and Achaia was the entire region of northern and southern Greece, which included the towns of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. They were patterns to follow. And they are still patterns to follow for us, as we're going to see today. This is amazing. And notice the pattern specifically for all the believers. For the word, verse 8, of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, it was like a trumpet blast. That's the word. It sounded forth. The word of God came forth. They were truly saved. They were sharing the gospel. And within that, also, their faith went forth. Middle of verse 8 but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Their, the, the, the account of their genuine faith in Christ had been broadcast forth everywhere so that Paul and Silas and Timothy had no need to say anything. They didn't need to say, here's what happened in Thessalonica. Oh, we already know what happened there. We've heard the truth of what's happened to them. Tremendous Wonderful reality. And then we come to our passage in verses 9 and 10 where we are given the account of that testimony that was broadcast forth, that their faith, the faith that spread, their faith in Jesus Christ and the results of that that had spread. And the news of this faith, this, this faith in Jesus Christ, this faith towards God, had come full circle so that Paul, Silas, and Timothy in Corinth, they didn't need to say anything. We've already heard about you from others. We don't even to say what happened in, in Thessalonica. So then, what is that which happened? What's the report? Verse 9, For they themselves report about what kind of a reception we had with you. How you turned to God from idols. Tremendous statement. These were pagan idolaters. All the different gods of the area. They heard the good news concerning Jesus Christ and their sin and the wrath to come. But Jesus saves them from that wrath to come and they turn to Jesus to be delivered from that wrath to come, to have salvation. 
You see, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. They turned to God from idols. Not from idols to God. They turned to God from their idols. That's salvation. That's salvation. Now, we don't have many idols in the United States, but we have lots of idols. You see, we are our own idols and our own will and whatever it might be, our own desires. That's our own idols. And you see, when we are saved, we turn to God from our idolatry, serving ourselves, trusting in ourselves, relying on ourselves for salvation, whatever it might be. Not believing, then we turn to believe in Jesus Christ. We turn to him from that. We cannot be set free from our sin ourselves, but we turn to Jesus. And when we turn to him, he sets us free from our sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But there's a turning. That's what the Bible calls repentance. It's a change of mind. I change my mind concerning my sinfulness and the truth of of judgment coming upon me. I believe it now and I need to turn to Jesus because that's true and I need salvation. So I turn to Jesus from my sin. We saw this in Isaiah 55 a couple weeks ago. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Salvation doesn't come by simply uh, believing a set of truths. We believe in a Savior. We turn to that Savior in faith. We believe in Jesus Christ. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Such wonderful words. Repentance. Jesus Christ proclaimed this. Mark chapter 1. He said, repent and believe the gospel. Luke chapter 24. He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead. Luke 24, 46 on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You see, God says you're in a terrible state. The wages of sin is death, and you may not believe that. Repentance is believing it. Okay, I do understand that. I reckon my mind is changed, and I now need to turn to Jesus Christ from my sin for salvation. And these Thessalonians, the report went out. They were truly saved. For they themselves report to us, that's the people that have heard it, and it's gone all throughout uh, Greece and every, to all the believers, they report to Paul, Silas, and Timothy what type of reception we had with you. Hey, you was, they received the word of God. And how you turned to God from idols. That's salvation. Some of you maybe have never truly turned to God from your religious idols. You set up an idol in how you serve him and the way you believe in him. You never, it's not the God of the Bible. Turn to, turn to the Lord from your idols. Or maybe it's just yourself. Turn to him and be saved and be saved. So we have the report of their true conversion. But within this report, which is an example to us, we have two specific things that were reported about them. And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time. Two specific things. First of all, the first thing is that they turned to do two things. First of all, notice in verse 9 in the middle, to serve a living and true God. 
Some people say, well, I, I need to get to know Jesus better before I can serve him. I'll serve him someday once I know all my gifting and all this stuff like that. I gotta, it's, I, you know, whatever it might be. They turn to serve the Lord. They turn. This is true salvation. And it is an example because some people truly get saved, but they don't receive the word enough to be taught to understand what they're saved unto. And these are an example to us as believers what we should be focused on. What God saved us unto. And we may know that, but we may have forgotten that, practically speaking. We may have forgotten that in our lives on a daily basis, what God really, truly saved us. He says to serve a living and true God. That's the first thing. And second, and to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So then, brothers and sisters, we as believers have an example to follow of true conversion. And from this example, we have two specifics that we need to pay attention to. We need to pay attention. If you truly turned to Jesus from your sin, we need to pay attention to why God did this. What we should be about in this temporal world and time. So let's look at the first one. Notice from the Thessalonians example that we were saved to serve God. They turned from turned to God from their idols uh, to serve a living and true God. These are new believers that are an example. That are an example. Verse 9, For they themselves report to us about what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols. That's true conversion, by the way. It's fully convicting. They believe the gospel. And then to do two things. To, first, to serve a living and true God. A lot of people turn to Jesus just to fix stuff. They don't know why God saved them. They don't know why Jesus saved them. The purpose, his will for why he saved you. When we turn to Jesus for salvation, we also need to turn to serve Jesus. He says there, to serve a living and true God. The term serve speaks of an ongoing behavior. To continually, habitually, a lifestyle of serving a living and true God. Now my question to you is, who do you serve every day? Who is your master? Is it you? Is it someone else? Who's your master? Is it sin? The term serve comes from the Greek word duleo, which means to perform the duties of a slave or a servant. And again, it's in that present tense, which speaks of a continuing lifestyle. And this word is a cognate of the Greek noun doulos, which is translated servant or bond servant throughout Scripture. And within Scripture, we see many times that... God's people are called bond servants or fellow bond servants, and they see themselves as bond servants of Christ. They understand the reality of why God saved them. And we need to not forget. We need to not forget. Throughout Scripture, this term bond servant is used to describe those who have a genuine relationship with the living God. You see, these pagans who turned to Jesus and got saved. Uh, they understood that they were saved to serve a living and true God. And this principle is laid out throughout Scripture for us. It's not just simply from this passage. Remember the, the uh, Israelites who were in bondage in Egypt. 
It's a picture of salvation. Now, the whole nation messed up and, you know, they had, they died out in the wilderness. You know all that, right? But it's a picture of being delivered from bondage. And what did the Lord say over and over again in Exodus? Let my, through Moses, let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may serve me. May the Lord send that to you. Let, you need to be let go of your sin to go to Jesus to serve him, right? So as we'll see. Throughout the Old Testament, we see we were saved to serve the Lord. I want to read some passages. I've shared these often, but I want to share them again. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10. If you're feeling like your life has no purpose, then here's why maybe. You don't understand why God saved you. And you're maybe not walking in that. You're just kind of going on autopilot each day and, and meandering through the troubles of the relationships that are around you and life or whatever it may be, rather than doing what is right as we will see and obeying the Lord in the areas that he has ordained that we serve him, which is everywhere. Deuteronomy 10:12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Now, Israel had made a covenant with them, okay, with him. He says, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and love him, and what? To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. A lot of divided hearts, double-minded. Sin gets in the way and we become double-minded. Attitudes gets in the way and we become double-minded. He says there, with all your heart. That's what he requires of you. And to keep the Lord's commands, his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good... Look down in verse 20 of chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall what? Serve him and cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. He saved you. Now here he's speaking of how he saved them from Egypt. The bondage of the greatest superpower of all time. This little tiny group of uh, Hebrews. He said, and we've been saved from our sin, the bondage of sin. Turn to chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, verse 13. And it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give you the rain for your land and season and early rain and late rain that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And he will give you grass for your fields, for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Beware, lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Now they had their idols from before the river, from Egypt and that. But we have the other gods that we used to serve ourselves, right? Beware. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is Samuel's farewell address. He addresses these truths inspired by the Spirit also. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. 1 Samuel 12, verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile or empty. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, 
because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from, from me that I should sin against the Lord by not, excuse me, by, sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. And here's that instruction. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. We were saved to serve the Lord. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus, what he was responding to Satan, you should worship and serve the Lord God only. Matthew 4, 6. And in our passage, they were saved unto the continual serving of a living and true God. You see, before salvation, we used to serve ourselves. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking in perpetual falsehood. We served ourselves. But now, having turned to God from our idols, being saved in Jesus Christ, we continually serve a living and true God. Everything else was dead and false, but now we serve a living and true God. And folks, there was a price paid for us to do this. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We were bought with a price to serve the Lord. To serve the Lord. We were bought out of uh, what we could call the slave market of sin. We were bought with a price from our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed or, or, or bought, that's bought back, redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ." For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The Apostle Paul would tell the Corinthians that we are not our own, for we have been bought with a price. Bought with a price. Tremendous price was paid to buy us from our sin. Uh, God the Son gave his life for us. Now, when I hear the word servant, and maybe you hear this, you go, ooh, I don't really like that word, right? I don't really like the idea of being a servant. I want to be the master, right? (laughs) We don't really like that word. And yes, our flesh reacts to it, and I can react to it, and we all can. But we need to have our minds renewed, you see? Because being a servant of Jesus Christ is a wonderful thing. Because he is good, he is kind, he is gracious, he is merciful, he is loving. He is a loving master who gave himself for us, who died for our sins, who paid the tremendous price to buy us from our sins. He died for our sins. And he will reward us for our service eternally. He's a good master. You see, sin is not a good master. We were slaves to sin. We used to offer ourselves to sin and it brought bondage. He who sins is a slave of sin, but if Jesus has set you free, you're free indeed. You see, we don't think we're free. We think we, well, we see, we do think we're free when we're sinning because we get our way in a sense, but we're not free. We're in bondage. We're in bondage. It's deceit. When we trust in Christ and allow Him to be our master, 
we are in the context of a good and gracious master who loves us and serving is no longer a burden in that sense. It's a good thing. It's what we were designed to do, to serve the living God. And folks, when you serve the living God truly from a changed heart, it's an evidence you've truly been changed. These Thessalonians, back in our passage, they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned to serve. That's the example for us. God saved us to serve him. Now, to serve him his way, not our way. So we're going to see. We're to serve his way, not our way. And we're going to see that a servant obeys their master. And God has laid forth in his word what he desires for us. And by his spirit, we are enabled to obey that truth. And that's how we serve the Lord. We serve the Lord by obeying him. If you have a master-servant relationship, the master says, do this, the servant does that, right? And if it's a good master, he provides everything that servant needs to do what he has called him to do. And it is beneficial for the master and for the servant in what is done together. You see, we've been saved to serve the living God. If you don't get this, something's wrong because you're hearing it today. You may have never heard this before, but today you have heard this. And we need to be reminded because we become dulled. Now, the primary way we serve the Lord, the primary way, although we're going to see we serve him in every area of our lives, the primary way we serve him is in the body of Christ. The primary way. It's where we see the most instruction concerning serving the Lord. It's the primary way. I'm going to take a look at a few passages that talk about uh, the scriptural basis for how we serve together and what we do. Now, certainly, we can serve the Lord just in general, as we read, as, as, uh, as Ben read from that passage. Serve one another in the context of love, right? You know, that's a general sense of loving one another, serving one another. But then there are also specifics in which we serve. And we need to understand those too. But we should be, as we see in Galatians, serving one another in the context of love. Let me read that passage. Galatians 5.13. Let's turn there. Let's turn there. Or you actually you have in your bulletins on the front, or you can turn there, whatever you like. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom. Hey, we were set free from sin and bondage, Right? But he's going to say, don't use that freedom to do your own thing. (laughs) He says here, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Oh boy, that should be convicting for a lot of people, for all of us. But through love, serve one another. Hey, that's primary. Now, you don't need to know the spiritual gifts in that context. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we should be serving one another through love. You see, because the whole law, he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I love God by obeying his word concerning you. Concerning you. So primarily, the way I serve in the body of Christ, primarily is by loving you, by being around you and serving you, right? But there are some specifics also, as we will see. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. You see, God has given us gifts that we are to use to serve one another in the body. He's given us gifts. And you can't do this, you can't love one another if you're not around one another, by the way. You're not serving anyone if you're not around, I'll tell you that right now. 
You're not serving anybody. We've got to be together. That's why it's an evidence of a changed heart to be together and not let my freedom become an opportunity for the flesh and I stay away from church, whatever it is. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one, not as only a few, but as each one has received a special gift, employ it, that means use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God gives grace gifts. And we see these gifts listed in 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Romans chapter 12. He says, be a good steward. Be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. Whoever, and he's going to give two basic categories of giftings in the body of Christ. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the oracles or oracles of God. If you speak, it ought to be God's word, right? If it's a speaking gift. Whoever serves... Let him do so by the strength that God supplies. If you serve, it better be by his strength because otherwise you're going to get the glory. And so here he says, do it by the strength that God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you're not serving the Lord, God's not being glorified. We were saved to serve the Lord. Now, certainly, as I mentioned, it comes in the context of love in the body of Christ primarily. But then there are special gifts that God has given us. We serve the Lord by his grace through the, through the spiritual gifts he's given us. Not natural talents. I can serve him that way too. I can love you with my natural talents in this body, right? I can serve you with the natural talents I have and love you. Absolutely. But I also serve with the gifts that he has given. Spiritual gifts. Like natural talents we had at birth. Spiritual gifts we, re- we receive at our spiritual birth when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, we see their grace gifts. We are given them. We are placed into the body of Christ and given these gifts by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And indeed, in serving one another, the primary application of coming to faith in Jesus Christ is actually serving. Turn to Romans chapter 12. You see, in the book of Romans, when Apostle Paul begins to give the primary applications for salvation, we're going to see serving is right there. We were saved to serve the Lord and thus one another. Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 begins his application for those who have been saved. He's given the the problem, which is sin, the solution, justification by faith in Jesus Christ, the result, which is life. Then how about Israel, unbelieving in the, or chosen in the past, unbelieving in the present, going to be saved in the future, and then the applications for us. Romans chapter 12. This is what we should do as believers. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship. There's a first thing. Give yourself over to God rather than sin. I can give myself over to sin every day. Give it over to God instead. Confess when you give over to sin. Give it over to God. You're a living sacrifice. Acceptable. And then we've got to renew our minds. And do not be conformed to this world, or literally by default be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Let the word of God, by the spirit of God, change your minds. That, notice what he says, this is important, that you may prove or demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. 
So when I renew my mind in the word of God, I will then demonstrate what his will is. And notice what he says the first thing of his will is. Notice this. People don't get this. They think of renewing my mind. They never get to the next verse. Four. Verse three. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but as but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then he explains. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. That's why we can't be we need to be together, by the way. Members of one another. And since we have what? Gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. The first application of renewing your mind, having God's will proved in your life, is serving one another in the body of Christ. And notice if you go down, he'll give a list of gifts, but then he kind of summarizes it up in verse 9. Let love, because it's love. When I have self-love, I'm not around. When I love you, I'm around, because you're more important than me. You're more important, so I'm going to serve you. I'm going to prepare my messages. I'm going to, I, I love you and I love the Lord, so I'm going to do the work in the Lord, right? I'm going to serve you. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another honor. That means I give you the preference. And he says here, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, and what does he say? Serving the Lord. The application of our salvation is offering ourselves up, renewing our minds, which will prove what his will is, and the first application is serving one another. You see, we were saved to serve the Lord and thus one another. That's the primary application. Now, again, we can do that through the giftings that God has given us. We can do it in general through the talents he has given us. We do it through both, actually. We saw that in Galatians. Again, I shared that to you. But through love, serve one another. Don't let your your freedom turn into an opportunity for the flesh where you just do your own thing. Serve one another in love. Some of you have given the flesh opportunity in this. Other things are more important than the Lord's people and serving him. It's just the way it is. You've given opportunity to the flesh. It's time to confess and be forgiven. God is so good. And he will use you for his glory as you serve him by serving his people. That's the primary application. Primary application. Now, when we serve, we should serve in the context of joy. This should be joy. shouldn't be, I'm going to come to the Bible study on Wednesday because I have to serve because that's what I heard on Sunday. No, it's because I want to be around. I want to be around the body of Christ and I want to serve the Lord by loving you, by seeing you as more important. And I've got to renew my mind to that or I will default back to my old ways. And I can prove what his will is by renewing my mind and demonstrate that. Psalm 100, verse 2, and I'll read this for you. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. That's the attitude we should have. And I mentioned this before, but serving our master, the Lord, means we obey our master, the Lord. And the Lord Jesus is the perfect example of that, who became 
in the form of a bondservant. He came to serve and not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom. He became obedient to the Father's will to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what servants do, no matter how difficult it is. You know, it may be difficult to serve the body of Christ because guess what? We're a lot of sinners. It may not be what I want to do, but I need to renew my mind because God gives us joy when we do what he wants us to do. Serve with with gladness. We're going to need to be like Christ. Psalm 103, we see the angels serve by doing his will. Elect angels. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him. And then notice what he says, doing his will. We don't serve the Lord doing it our way. We serve the Lord doing his will. Obeying his word in relationship to one another. That's how we serve. In a general sense, we saw Galatians serve by loving one another. In a specific sense, we see it in the giftings. Be good stewards of those gifts that God has given you. Well, that's the primary area that we serve the Lord. And these Thessalonians turned to serve the Lord. They're our example. And we need to listen to that example. And my prayer earlier was that we're convicted now, but we don't just walk out and that conviction fizzles out and is gone when we walk out the door. That we're convicted. That you see the Lord has saved you to serve his body. To serve him. That's why he saved you. And there's joy in that. I tell you, serving yourself, there's no joy in that. You think there is? It's It's a lie. It's a lie. When you serve the Lord the way he's ordained you to serve, and you're following him, you're abiding in him by his spirit, trusting in him, there's joy even in the difficulties. And there'll be difficulties, I'll tell you. That's when it gets tough, when you decide to do what's right. It's easy to slip off and do your own thing. But here, when you serve the Lord, there's joy. There's joy. Well, how else do we serve the Lord? We serve the Lord in every area of our lives, and God's Word gives us the, the, the how to serve in those areas. And I'm going to share a little bit here and there, but the primary area we see in Scripture is the body of Christ. By the way, remember that as I go to the rest of these lists here. But how do I serve the Lord at home? How do I serve the Lord at home? I obey. I obey. It's simple. We obey the Word in relationship to our families in the home. Let me share some things. And see, I don't think we often think, hey, I'm serving you today with my family today, Lord. I want to serve you by obeying you in relationship to this person. We've got to think through it. We need to renew our minds because we fail. We all fail. And in everything I'm going to share, we've all failed. If you're married, certainly we have. If you're not, in other relationships, we know we've failed. But this is what God wants us to do, and we need to desire to do that. He'll enable us as we grow in Christ. Let me paraphrase some of these commands. Husbands, love your wives. Water them with the word. Live with them in an understanding way. Do not be embittered towards them. Husbands, that's you want to serve the Lord towards your wife? There you go. Right? Obviously, wives, submit and respect your husband. Love your husbands. Love your children. Be sensible. Peer workers at home, subject to your own husbands. You want to serve the Lord? Obey the word of God. Fathers, raise your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Serve the Lord in how you raise your kids. Some people serve at church and they never serve anywhere else in their lives. We need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. You need to be reminded. Discipline your children according to the word of God in the context of love. 
Husbands and wives, train your children, teach them in the word, address their hearts. Husbands, provide for your family. Children, serve the Lord. By how so? By obeying your parents. That's your command. You want to serve the Lord, obey your parents. That's serving the Lord. That's serving the Lord. That's the command for you. And everyone, honor your father and mother. And I could go on and on and on and on. God's word shows us how we serve him in every sphere of our lives. And we need to remember that. We were saved to serve him, primarily in the body of Christ, but everywhere else too. And we need to think it through because I don't think we've thought through it. And the Thessalonians are a good example for us. Well, how about at work? Let me share some things. First of all, obey the Lord and work. If you're a man, that's a, we'll see that later on the Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, right? Obey the Lord, work. We see that. And then, and, and everybody, secondly, including men and women who are working, let me share a passage for you. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. You want to serve the Lord? Here's the direct instruction. And there's also some in Titus 2. It's all throughout the Word of God. But here's how God says, I want you to serve me at work. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. It doesn't say grumbling and mumbling. and ugh. Do your work heartily as for what? The Lord rather than men. That's really important. I need to renew my mind with that. Okay, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord that's going to reward you for your service. If you don't serve the Lord at work, there's no reward. I'll tell you that right now. When you serve the body of Christ, no reward. So when you serve the Lord, there is a reward. He says, it is the Lord Christ whom what? You serve. Right? Pretty clear. So he says here, for he who does wrong will see the consequences of doing wrong, which he's done in that without partiality. We serve the Lord. And guess what? If you don't like serving, something's not right in your head concerning our master and what he calls us to do and the power he gives us to do what he calls us to do and the joy that there is. Because we're going to be serving him forever, by the way. It doesn't end here. We have the privilege of serving him forever. Revelation chapter 22, and I'll read this for you, verse 3. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. Still bondservants even in eternity, by the way. Start now. We've been saved to serve. Serve the Lord in the body of Christ. Serve the Lord at home. Serve the Lord at work. Well, what about the world? We have commands about the world, don't we? We can serve the Lord out in the world. Well, certainly someone, if he has a gift of evangelism, that will be out in the world. But let me share in the world. Let me paraphrase some passages. Let your light shine in such a way, right? Don't cast your pearls before swine. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech be seasoned always with grace, as seasoned as it were with salt. Serve the Lord by obeying him in regard to who you choose to hang out with. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Bad company corrupts good morals. Serve the Lord choosing the right companions. Serve the Lord by remembering this, Titus 3. We are to malign no one. 
to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Why? Because we were just like them before we got saved. We were just like them, foolish ourselves, Titus 3, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Serve the Lord. That's the example we have. And it might be convicting for some. Are you serving the Lord? Are you allowing his word to demonstrate or prove what his will is in these areas? Are you renewing your mind so that you see things rightly in all these areas in all your life? I venture to say some of you have never truly served the Lord because you've never truly turned to God from yourself and your sin and your own desires. And some of you are serving a false God, a God based on lies or the twisting of Scripture or one you made in your own image. Yet when we turn to Christ, we turn to a living and true God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, through the blood of Christ, our consciences are cleansed from dead works. That's false serving. That was the Jews who didn't know the Lord. Dead works to serve a living God. Well, lastly, about serving, God shares in Malachi that you can see who the righteous and the wicked are based on something. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. And folks, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are yet, just walk in the Spirit, right? Be around the body of Christ and walk in the Spirit and fill your mind with His Word. He'll start to make it evident. But then serve one another love with love, through love, in the meantime. And be built up and learn and learn. Malachi chapter 3, verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Pretty straightforward. And I've shared this passage before. The Lord used this to to call me to himself. Joshua 24, verse 14, and I'm going to read it for you. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. That's what we need to do. Fear him and serve him. Sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. And now if this is disagreeable in your sight, God's going to say, don't fool yourself. It's disagreeable. Don't pretend to serve him. If it's disagreeable, he says here, to serve the Lord in your sight, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served, which were beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, that's a wonderful verse, and we can have that on our wall, but is it true? Are we serving him through obeying his word in relationship to all those things we've seen? We were saved to serve the Lord in every area of our lives by obeying him, and there's joy in that, in the body of Christ Relationship to our spouses, no matter how things go in the body of Christ, no matter how things go with our spouses, with our children, with our work at church in the world. So many people don't know the Lord. They're serving themselves. And it's a horrible life if you can call it that. It's the living dead. Trying to fulfill their lives with stuff and people on their way to hell. Not with us. 
We have purpose in this life and afterwards serving the Lord. Some of you may have gotten away from this. You're not doing well, even though you think you might be. Sin has gotten in the way. Examine yourself. Get back to why God saved you. We've been given a wonderful opportunity in this life to serve him, and there's great reward for those who choose to serve the Lord. Choose this day to serve the Lord. So back to 1 Thessalonians. So we see the first thing, they were saved to serve the Lord. That's really primarily what they were saved unto. But they were saved unto serving him and waiting for him. They were waiting for him, you see. When you know the Lord Jesus, you can't wait till he comes back because the job of salvation is not done yet. You see, God's wrath, as we will see, is coming and it's going to be poured out. But he is going to deliver us from that because of what he did on the cross and having been risen from the dead. Verse 9, back chapter 1. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And, here we go, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We have been saved to continually serve the Lord and also to continually await the Savior who saved us. Continually await him. We see it's interesting, it's called his son and then Jesus. His son speaks of the son of God, pointing to deity. God is one, but yet revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we have the reality, his son uh, is coming from heaven. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus. Jesus is the son of God, who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And we're waiting. We're awaiting him coming back. We're awaiting Jesus. This is the example for us. They had it right. When you get saved, our primary focus should be awaiting Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, looking up to him for his coming, looking to him for his coming. Remember, his name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Matthew one twenty one. you shall name him Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. So Jesus came and died for our sins and rose from the dead and is coming back for us. And we must learn, as these Thessalonians did, they were eagerly awaiting him. Now the return spoken of here is not uh, speaking of the second coming of Christ, where Jesus will come back in glory, Matthew 24, at the end of the tribulation, pour out his wrath on his enemies and defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom. The return for us spoken of here is his coming to deliver us, to take us out before his wrath comes upon this earth. Look down in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thought about making this two sermons too, but <laughs> you'll, you'll, we've got an early start today, so we'll be good. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. These Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus. And then some of their brothers and sisters died and they got concerned. And Paul's going to explain to them. First Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed or literally ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep. That's those who passed away. That you may not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, hey, if you believe the gospel, truth concerning Jesus... Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the sound, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up with together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You see, if you were to die as a believer now, your soul would go to be with Jesus, your body would go in the grave. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to bring everyone who's fallen asleep and they're going to be raised first, reunited with their bodies, glorified, and then those who are alive and remain will be changed and then will be caught up, harpazo, with the Lord in the air. That's where we get our word rapture. Therefore, encourage one another. We're going to be together again with the Lord. He's coming for us. He's coming for us. We're going to be with him. We're going to be with him. In John chapter 14, Jesus shares this truth. It's not his coming to earth because he's coming to take us away. And John chapter 14 proves that. And I'm going to read it for you. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, that's in heaven, by the way. I will again come and receive you to myself, that where I am, he's in heaven, he's going to take him unto himself, that you may be also. Jesus is coming for believers to take them to heaven. And we eagerly await that coming because that's when our salvation is consummated. You see? You see, if we die right now, our souls go to be with the Lord. We're not glorified yet. It's when Jesus comes, our bodies are raised and we're changed, or we're changed being alive at that time. One last passage. Well, actually, I, I would share Philippians, 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, that we shall, all be, we shall all be changed. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Philippians chapter 3. Turn there for a second. You see, we eagerly await something the culmination of our salvation. The Philippians had it right. Serving the Lord, waiting for Jesus to finish the job. Serving the Lord, waiting for Jesus. Serving the Lord, waiting for Jesus. Serving the Lord, waiting for Jesus. That's what we need to do. Serve the Lord and wait for Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 23, excuse me. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. The job isn't totally done yet. We've been saved from our sins, but we haven't been glorified yet. And we haven't been saved ultimately from the wrath to come yet, practically speaking. We've been saved from it, but we're going to be delivered, rescued when it happens. He says here, who will transform Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That means we're going to be glorified. By the exertion of his power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. We were saved to serve and wait for Jesus and wait for him. His son, whom he raised from the dead, he puts that in there because we need to think of him rightly. He is the Savior who died for us and rose from the dead. And his resurrection affirms our resurrection and our glorification. We wait for a risen Savior. 
Not a dead Savior, a risen Savior. And he delivers us from the wrath to come. Boy, we're out of town. I can't believe this. <laughs> Still wonderful. We're going to keep going a little bit here. I just want to share a few things. He says in verse 10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The term wrath means anger. It can speak of an upsurge of anger. The term delivers here can rightly be translated rescues. Um, it speaks, and from one lexicon, it speaks of bringing someone out of severe or acute danger. We are in danger of God's wrath towards sin. You see, God has made it clear that we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. You see, God's wrath is coming. It's literally his coming wrath. There is the wrath of God coming upon this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see that we were by nature children of wrath in our sin before we were saved by grace. Ephesians chapter 5, we know with for certainty, verse 5, that no immoral or impure or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, sin... The wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. God is angry at sin. We see it in Colossians. We see it, for on account of these things, the wrath of God will come, in which you once walked and you were living in them, but put them aside, all anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. He goes on. God is angry at sin. He's a holy, righteous God. And he's angry at sin. And yet he poured out his wrath on Jesus instead. Jesus took the cup of his wrath. He poured out his wrath on Jesus, and Jesus paid the full price. And because of that, we are delivered from God's anger towards sin. We're forgiven. Totally pardoned. Look at Romans chapter 2 as we finish up here. Romans 2. These Jews thought they had it made with the Lord, but they didn't. Romans 2, verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, because wrath and judgment go together, by the way. Judgment and wrath are like this. Falls on those who practice these things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, that you and do the same yourself, you shall escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Because of your stubbornness, and notice this, unrepentant heart. Not turning from sin to Jesus, right? Unrepentant heart. You are storing up what? Wrath for yourself. And notice this, in the day of wrath and revelation of what? The righteous judgment of God, who will render every man according to his deeds. God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Acts 17, because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world. God's wrath is going to come in the context of his judgment. He's going to pour it out. Now, as we finish up here, there's two spheres of this. There's the personal wrath upon us, where it is being poured out. We will be judged for our sins uh, if you haven't come to Christ. The great white throne judgment seat, you'll be judged for your sins. God's wrath upon you for your sins. You'll be thrown in the lake of fire. That's the personal wrath. 
But there's also another wrath that he delivers us from. It's the day of the Lord, his coming wrath upon this world. Zephaniah chapter 1. If I have it here, yes. Zephaniah 1. Near is the great day of the Lord, near coming quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord as a warrior cries bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble, distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of battle cry, trumpet and battle cry. He goes on to say, I will bring distress upon men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like done. Neither their silver or gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of the inhabitants of the earth. There is the day of the Lord. After we're taken away as believers, we're not destined for wrath, chapter 5, that the Lord is going to come and pour out his wrath on this earth, and it's going to culminate with him coming to this earth personally. And in, and in Matthew and Revelation 19, it says about Jesus that he treads the winepress of the wrath, fierce wrath of God. There's wrath corporately upon the world, and there's wrath individually for our sin. But our passage says they're looking for Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I need to think of Jesus differently. There's wrath coming, and people who reject Christ are going to die in their sins, and they're going to experience God's wrath. Jesus rescued us. He's rescuing us from that future wrath, and that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. So then, what was their example? What was their example? Their example was very clearly that they turned to serve the living God and to wait for him. How about you and I? Is that your priority in your life? Or are you using your freedom for an opportunity to the flesh? Just confess if you are. Turn to serve the living God and eagerly await his son who delivers us and the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins and that he rose from the dead and that he is coming again and that it is Jesus who delivers us, who rescues us from your wrath upon sin and sinners. Please help us not to forget that, what we've been saved from. And help us, Lord, to serve you all of our days with gladness, righteously. Help us to follow the example of the Thessalonians by your power and your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name.